Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm joined this week from Brussels by Tom Nuttall, who is the Economist's Bureau Chief there and the author of the Shallowman column. And our topic this week is Brexit in Brussels. When the British people voted to leave the European Union on the 23rd of June, it sent a shockwave or several shockwaves running through the stock market. The pound in London started tumbling. There was a domino fell in the political realm with David Cameron resigning, the leader of the opposition Labour Party being no confidenced and a whole series of uh, political, constitutional and other changes were unleashed by that referendum. But outside of London, nowhere has been more shaken than the Belgian capital, which is the centre of the EU institutions, which is the home of uh, many thousands of, of British people who are wondering about their own future. But it's also at the epicentre of a revolt against the European project, which was very much in evidence in London, but which is reverberating through many of the other 27 member states now. So uh, thrilled uh, to be joined by Tom, who is one of the most uh, astute and um, I think uh, original observers of, of what's going on in Brussels and how it links up with the wider European project. Maybe go straight to you, Tom. I mean, you've been living uh, with the referendum results for the last uh, almost a month now, I suppose. Um, what, tell me about the different phases that Brussels has been through. Well, um, I think uh, it's, it's, it's been a very intense period for people here. Um, I mean, the initial reaction on the, uh, the day after the referendum was shock, as it was, I think, in many parts of Britain, for the simple reason that people, most people didn't expect this to happen. Um, now, that gave way rather quickly to, um, in many quarters, um, including but not limited to Brussels, um, widespread denial. Um, I was quite surprised, actually, that it was a, um, a distinct lack of curiosity amongst many people that I spoke to as to the reasons for this referendum result. Um, and I was surprised not only because the referendum itself was cataclysmic, uh, or potentially cataclysmic, but because it seemed to be an expression of a sort of concern um, amongst certain parts of, uh, of of the electorate that many other European countries were experiencing too. But the reaction in, in many places for the first few days at least was, um, uh, oh, there'll be a second referendum. Oh, Germany will throw Britain a bone on free movement and this will never happen. Uh, the prime minister, whoever it's going to be, will never trigger Article 50. Um, that was allied um, or accompanied um, by uh, a certain degree of scorn um, particularly from um, some member states that had always found Britain to be a, a troublesome partner rather than a useful ally was in the EU. Um, it was, okay, well, you have, you've caused us trouble for years. We gave you as much as we could do within the treaties in the renegotiation that, uh, that David Cameron pursued earlier this year, and it's still not good enough for you. Well, if you're, gonna be, if you're going to leave, then leave now and shut the door behind you. And that was when we had all these early arguments um, about the timing of Article 50. 
Um, we moved on from that, I think, uh, in large part anyway, um, when the shape of the British government began to materialise. Um, I think it's fair to say there was um, a good deal of relief that um, it was Theresa May and not Boris Johnson who found themselves inside number 10. Um, Theresa May is a reasonably well-known quantity here simply because she has spent the last six years attending Justice and Home Affairs Councils um, during her time as Home Secretary. Um, she's fairly well respected. Um, she, uh, she uh, not only did she hold her own in those meetings, but she surprised some of her counterparts by making useful contributions in debates to which um, Britain did not have a direct stake in those areas in which there were British opt-outs, for example. Um, so I think there's some cautious optimism about her, coupled with um, deep concern about um, the, the sort of fractious, unpredictable nature of British politics and how that might shape the British negotiating posture as we head into the second half of the year and the first half of next year when the uh, withdrawal talks will begin in earnest. So right now, I think everybody else is just in a holding pattern and we're waiting to see what's going to emerge from London. OK, so my... Uh, sources in Brussels told me that first there, there was horror, as you described, and this scorn. But the, the next thing that happened was that Brussels started doing what it does best, which is uh, turf wars between institutions around the Rond-Point Can you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> um, yes. Uh, well, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, um, it never takes very much for um, the institutions on either side of the Rue de la Loire to start um, to get it, uh, to, to to compete over turf and to and to try and work out who's going to be in charge of what. Um, so what lies behind this is under Article Fifty, um, the 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 article describes uh, briefly the procedure for negotiations with the country that has declared its intention to withdraw from the European Union. Um, it does not, it doesn't, it is silent on who conducts those negotiations. Now, the assumption had always been, perhaps based on the model of how um, trade, EU trade negotiations are conducted, that um, the uh, European Council would, uh, so in other words, the, the heads of governments of the European Union would provide the European Commission with a mandate to conduct those talks. Um, but um, as you are no doubt aware, there are important members of the European Council um, who are not overjoyed with um, the performance of the European Commission under, under the presidency of Jean-Claude Juncker and worry that um, it might not be best placed to conduct those talks. Now, my understanding is that um, uh, this, this sort of very inside the Beltway discussion um, is not yet concluded, um, but there is a general understanding that the Commission probably in the end will be charged with conducting those negotiations, but under the very stern eye of some clever people um, inside the Council who will make sure that um, that the Commission doesn't go, as it were, off-piste um, in these talks. But, there, but, a lot of, but this all remains to be played for, and I don't think there's any great sense of urgency on it because, uh, as I said, um, everybody here is just waiting to see what sort of stance the British are going to take. And if, and if we're not going to have a triggering of Article 50, until, um, you know, perhaps February, March next year, then there's plenty of time for the institutions um, in Brussels to get their ducks in a row. So um, my understanding was that the day after the referendum, the British 
commission a very senior official, uh, uh, Jonathan Fall, who'd been running the UK task force within the European Commission, was sent off on gardening leave. Um, and then they appointed a Belgian civil servant and diplomat, Didier, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Su, 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 yeah, how do you pronounce that? What's the latest? Uh, uh, the, the latest on the pronunciation. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. You might need to get that fact checked. I think I, I think it's something like Zeus. But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, let, well, we'll call him Didier so that we don't um, in, insult him by getting his surname pronunciation wrong. Um, now, he, he has been appointed inside the council. Um, inside the council as opposed to the commission, which is where Jonathan Falls' task force sat. Um, now, I think the original point of um, appointing Didier to that job was simply to ensure that the council itself was internally coordinated. Um, but in time-honoured fashion, the commission rather overreacted to this and thought it was a power grab by um, by the guys inside the Justice Lipsius building. Um, and were very uh, and were very keen to make sure that um, that uh, that the council didn't steal a march so, on. So them. the council, the members, that's the representative of the heads of in, state and government. Exactly. In the, the exactly. Yeah. Yes. So um, so Jonathan Falls task force, which um, did a pretty good job of managing the renegotiation with David Cameron's government early this year, that has now been officially wound up. Um, it will not provide. It will not even be the sort of putative. Um, body that conducts the negotiations to come inside the commission. Um, we, it's, it's pretty clear. Well, we, uh, we, we don't know how that's going to work. Um, it could be that they set up something along the, on the, along the lines of what the task was, but obviously much, much larger because these discussions are going to touch upon every issue of British European policy. Um, they may decide um, that they want a more visibly sort of political leadership. Uh, so that might mean, for example, and this is all speculation, that might mean, for example, that you would have a senior member of the College of Commissioners leading that task force. One name I've heard put about is Franz Timmermans, the, the first vice president, um, who, as uh, British officials like to say, knows how to speak British. So that might be, that's one possibility. So he went to the British school in Rome as a child. In, indeed, and speaks, and speaks better English than the, than most English people that us. I know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Plus about six other languages. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, none of this stuff has been decided. They haven't even worked out, by the way, um, what portfolio they're going to be giving um, poor old Julian King, who is going to be the last British yeah. commissioner. I that heard just, that, that a call's gone out to people uh, to give up stuff that they didn't want to do so that Julian could be employed. That Yeah, that that has been reported. I mean, it's, it's a slightly tricky issue. They um they don't want to insult the Brits by giving him um, you know, the job of... Uh, yes, or paperclip distribution. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's going to be rather difficult for... Might be insulting to... the rest of the EU if they give him multilingualism. But anyway. Right. <laughs> well, yes, indeed. Um, but at the same time, um, other commissioners, understandably, um, uh, one would imagine that they're going to guard their prerogatives jealously. Um, and particularly seeing as uh, the British commissioner will probably only be in post for two, two and a half years. Um, and in the meantime, uh, before he is approved, he will have to face what I imagine will be a rather hostile um, reception in the European Parliament. All commissioners have to be approved by the Parliament. So that's going to be that's going to be a difficult job as well. So there's lots of this sort of institutional wrangling. So, one of the things I heard um, was that the actual I mean, obviously, the, there'll be a lot of political management of the relationship, but the, the, the core coordination task will fall to DG Near, which was the enlargement uh, DG, because they think that this is like enlargement in reverse. So <laughs> the people 
DG shrinkage. Yeah. <laughs> it did. Um, uh, well, you you you're, you're better informed than I am. I haven't heard that particular. What I have. There's I mean, also what, not much enlargement going on at the moment, so so the, it would be a kind of good use for the, of, of the skills of, of the enlargement of their expertise. Yeah, yes. What what I have heard in discussions with some commission officials is that there are a number of possible models for how the commission's negotiations with Britain over Brexit could proceed, assuming that it is the commission that um, that conducts them. Um, enlargement is one, um, or, or sort of reverse enlargement, as you described it. Um, trade is another one, um, and not solely because ultimately Britain will need to conduct trade negotiations with um, with the European with the European Union, but because there is a sort of a uh, a sort of a, a template, a model for how the European Union conducts negotiations with a third party or what in this case will soon be a third party. Um, I don't think any firm decisions on any of this stuff have been taken yet. Um, I mean, of course, for just as Britain is entering uncharted territory with its departure from the European Union, so is the European Union. Um, I mean, with the with the exception of Greenland, which seceded from the uh, from the EU while remaining part of Denmark uh, um, a while ago, um, no one has ever left the EU. There is no particular template. There's no blueprint for how to conduct yeah. these negotiations. So the Commission is going to be on a, on a um, on a on a fairly sort of steep learning curve as well as Britain is. So I like to start trying to chart some of that territory with you, Tom. But before we do that, the, the one other big fight there was immediately after the. Brexit vote was because this was a time when lots of people were either resigning or people calling for their resignations. We've already discussed David Cameron and Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, but there was a lot of speculation about the future of Jean-Claude Juncker as well. Do you want to uh, elucidate that? Yeah, um, I, I think this actually, um, th there's a lot of speculation in the German press um, some quarters of the German press, which had originally been very supportive of um, of his presidency after the European elections in 2014. Um, I think large parts of the German um, government uh, have gone, particularly um, the CDU, have gone cold on Jean-Claude Juncker. I don't think this has a huge amount to do with Brexit. Um, I don't think anyone fair-minded would suggest that um, Jean-Claude Juncker would be blamed for um, for the for the British vote. Um, but there have been concerns about his leadership, perhaps focus more on style, or at least as much on style and approach as on content. Um, he's, he's often very absent from Brussels, spends a lot of time in Luxembourg, um, his home country. Um, he delegates an awful lot of power to his chief of staff, Martin Zellmeyer, who is, I think it's fair to say, one of the more divisive characters um, in Brussels. Um, has a very interventionist approach to um, commission policy making, very centralised. Um, uh, but Germany's not the only country that's been hostile. I've been struck just recently, actually, by um, the degree of hostility towards the Commission president from a lot of Central and Eastern European countries. Um, and I think this is largely for two reasons, and they're both policy related. First, of course, is all the wrangling over um, migration last year where the Commission advanced and continues to advance various sort of proposals that would see compulsory relocation of asylum seekers across the EU. Lots of Eastern European countries are very unhappy about that. That's uh, no secret. More recently, last week, we had um, a wrangle over the so-called Posted Workers Directive. Um, now, this is a proposed piece of EU legislation that would attempt to ensure that when uh, employees of a firm in one country 
uh, sorry, when firms in one country send their employees to another EU country, that um, pay and benefits are closely harmonized with the conditions in the receiving country. Um, and this is something that the French have been pushing very heavily. Um, it's, um, it perhaps goes back to their concerns over Polish plumbers and sort yeah, the, of the their French labor markets. Prime Minister's threatened not to implement EU law. Hasn't exactly, exactly. So what happened was, um, we're moving away from Brexit here, but what happened was... Um, uh, 11 parliaments in the EU, um, all of them Eastern European apart from Denmark, um, for only the third time uh, in the EU's history, they issued what's called the yellow card against this directive. And that, that forces the Commission to go back and review their proposal um, on the grounds of subsidiarity, which means could it have been, could this um, proposed law be better enacted at national level? Uh, the Commission went back and reviewed it and duly decided to, um, uh, to completely ignore the Eastern Europeans. As you can expect, the Eastern Europeans are not overjoyed about that. Um, and I'm now hearing more and more complaints about about um, the way in which this commission uh, it, it, uh, handles its business, too close to the parliament, uh, not willing enough to listen to member states who may be sceptical about its legislative proposals. And interestingly, um, there is a growing sense now that the commission, which has traditionally been seen as the champion of the interests of smaller states in the EU, is not playing that role at all. And I hear that more and more from smaller countries, particularly Eastern European countries. So... Lots of grumbling, but that's not new. I can't remember a single president of the European Commission who hasn't uh, had people grumbling about him uh, in different capitals. But are people actually going to do anything about it? One thing I did hear is that even if it's impossible to force um, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker out, though there has been much more noise about that than than, uh, than I had uh, have experienced for about anyone for a while, that they might try and force Selmayr out. <laughs> um, I mean, he's certainly, in some quarters, he's, he's very unpopular, and there's certainly be plenty of people who'd be delighted to see the back of him. Um, but that's a very different question from whether they're actually going to do anything about it, and in fact, what they could do about it. Um, I mean... You know, if you uh, if you were German and you decided that Juncker and or Selmayr, who of course is German, um, were uh, dramatically impeding uh, whatever sort of project it is that you wanted to do, or were helping to sort of bring about the downfall of the European Union, therefore it's sort of strategic imperative to get rid of them. Well, you could probably bring that about. Um, I don't think that that remotely describes the situation that we're in at the moment. Um, in fact, I think it's quite the opposite. I think the mood in Berlin is uh, more along the lines of um, we have been hit by one crisis after another over the last couple of years. The last thing we need to do is precipitate, precipitate what, um, yet another one um, by uh, causing a huge drama over the, um, the presidency of the commission. So I expect that this will, uh, this row will blow over. In fact, I think it is already starting to blow over. As you said, grumbling about the presidency of the commission, I mean, that's, that's completely par for the course in the EU. I expect there'll be plenty more of it. Um, I don't think we've heard the last of the rows over migration um, because the commission has got lots of stuff up its sleeve on that front but um i i, I think it would be uh I, I think it would be a little bit much to expect that we're going to see a concerted push to actually try to um to get rid either of Juncker uh, or of his chef de cabinet I, I, I don't see that happening all right so back to brexit then um it's uh, dizzyingly complicated as you described earlier and as you uh, is also uncharted but it's not just one negotiation do you want to give us a typology of the different types of negotiations uh, that are going to need to take place 
and how they how they and and they also all have different rule books, don't they? Yes. Um, so okay. Well, um, to try to keep it simple, um, the the first thing that, uh, that well the first formal thing that will happen will be uh, Theresa May triggering Article Fifty. Um, and when that happens, uh, the clock starts ticking and there are two years for Britain to conclude its uh, divorce settlement with the remainder of the EU. And that covers all sorts of things from, the, from Britain's contribution to the budget, to the status of, um, of British nationals in the EU and vice versa, uh, to EU institutions that are inside Britain, all of that stuff. That needs to be settled within two years, um, unless every single other member state agrees to extend those negotiations. And the point about Article 50 and the two-year time limit is that it was deliberately designed, ironically, by a Brit um, when it was originally inserted into the treaty, um, to give all of the negotiating, put all of the negotiating cards into the hands of the remainder, the, the remaining EU countries. It's a very bad deal for the country that's looking to leave, which is one reason why Theresa May will make sure that she has a very clear negotiating strategy before she invokes it however much that is going to frustrate some people on the other side of the table. So that's one thing. Um, second thing, probably in the long run more important, is uh, what sort of settlement um, emerges for the relationship between, the Britain, uh, between Britain and the EU once it's left. And there are all sorts of models here, which I'm sure everyone's heard about. Um, you could uh, the sort of the, the, uh, the, the model that involves the closest relationship um, is, is something like what Norway or Iceland or Liechtenstein have inside the European economic area, where you retain more or less free access to the single market of the European Union, but you continue to pay into the budget, you continue to accept free movement rules, um, and you have no say over uh, the rules of the single market because you are no longer part of the decision-making structures. Um, and I think probably the sense is that um, because particularly of the fact that you're not able to limit immigration with this model, it's pretty unlikely that Britain in the long run is going to go for that. So the expectation seems to be ultimately that we're headed for a looser form of relationship, some sort of free trade agreement, perhaps involving a greater degree of access to the single market for services, particularly financial services, which are course very important for Britain in exchange perhaps for some sort of um, special regime for uh, for European Union for immigrants from the European Union looking to move to Britain um, but what it's important to emphasize is that those discussions are a way off yet um, no one thinks that those could be concluded within the two-year uh, timeline that article 50 allows for so we're going to have a slightly um, frightening period a potentially frightening period after Britain leaves, after the two-year period, but before the ultimate settlement has been concluded, it's not clear what happens then. Some people talk about do EEA, do a Norway model temporarily, sort of park yourself in that harbour while you conclude the longer-term deal. Other, others think that that won't be palatable domestically inside Britain. Um, so, um, you know, there's a hell of a lot to play for. Um, the, the final point, before everyone falls asleep, um, is that, Although the mantra for the EU uh, immediately after referendum was to Britain was uh, there can be no negotiations before notification, i.e. of Article 50. 
um, there is, I think, an understanding that there are certain sort of parameters for the, the negotiations to come that will have to be agreed before Article 50 is invoked. Um, Theresa May has already been to a couple of European capitals, to Berlin and Paris. I'm sure that she will be visiting more before she invokes Article 50. So um, there are some, there, there will be some sort of sotto voce talks taking place before the formal ones begin next year, I think. I think some people might actually use the podcast to, to, to go to sleep. So let's not, let's not shortchange them by circumventing our discussions about different models of Article 50. But anyway, um, the um, other complicated thing about this is, is not just that you have these multiple types of negotiations. And I suppose you can add to them some of the other bits of the relationship, what, what um, uh, role Britain plays in European foreign policy and security policy and, and uh, what police cooperation there is, judicial cooperation, um, other bits of justice and home affairs. Um, but the, the way that they get ratified is also different. So the first one just has to be, the divorce only has to be passed by the European Parliament and by the European Council. Uh, that, that doesn't have to be ratified by all the different parliaments in the, in the EU. Whereas the second one would have to be taken unanimously and then ratified by every single um, national parliament. So that's that's pretty complicated. What about, to go into for even further into the weeds, do you, do you want to talk about the different types of free trade agreements? Because you hear names bandied about like Turkey, Canada, Ukraine, etc. I mean, yes, yeah, uh, I mean, plenty of models. Um, uh, I'm sure that some of them will be the basis for discussion. So I expect probably in the British case, we'll end up with something, um, as it were, bespoke, unique to Britain. Um, so, yeah, I mean, well, we discussed uh, Norway and the EEA already. Um, there's the Switzerland model, which is a very complex set of bilateral arrangements between uh, Switzerland and the, e and the EU, uh, which does also include free movement rights for EU nationals, which has been controversial inside Switzerland. Um, but it doesn't involve um, untrammeled access for, uh, for financial services. So, again, that's going to be tricky for Britain to accept. Um, then there are individual free trade agreements. So the EU has recently concluded negotiating one with Canada, so-called CETA. Um, that took, I think, seven years to conclude. It's not yet been ratified. Um, and in fact, there are some complications around that because the Commission recently agreed that national parliaments could uh, would have to ratify it, not only the European Parliament. Um, there's the Turkey arrangement. That's uh, a customs union, um, which now uh, there were talks, ongoing talks about how to expand the scope of that customs union um, to include things like uh, agriculture. Um, I've forgotten the other things that they were looking for, but um, that that was a, another sort of model. Um, I don't know what's going to happen to those talks given recent events in Turkey. Um, and the, Europe, the, the EU-Turkey relationship has become a lot more complicated over the last year, not least because of the relationship over migration. Um, but the customs union model is another one. That, of course, um, would be very difficult for a lot of um, Brits to swallow because it would impede their ability to conduct independent trade negotiations. Um, and we've been told by some of the Brexiteers inside Britain that um, uh, Britain will be looking to uh, to strike deals with um, you know every man and his dog um, before article even before article 50 has been concluded um, so I think it's going to be difficult uh, inside Britain to push that as a model um, I don't know Ukraine, the deep and comprehensive free trade agreement That's yeah what, what so mean I mean the, to the, the lay person the, the the deals with Ukraine and the other countries in the so-called Eastern partnership um, 
I think it would be slightly odd to use those as a model for Britain because these emerged from, um, well, ultimately this thing called the European Neighbourhood Policy and then it's um, it's Eastern European iteration, the Eastern Partnership. And they were meant to provide ways for countries in Europe's neighbourhood to deepen their integration with the EU um, without, uh, while falling well short of membership. Um, the, the original line of Romana Prodi, the former commission president um, of the European Neighbourhood Policy was everything but the institutions. Um, and th- these are the, um, that is the sort of the thinking that goes behind the, um, the deep and comprehensive free trade agreements that countries like Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia have signed with the, um, with the European Union. Um, not particularly clear why that would be used as a model for a country that's on the way out. Um, uh, as opposed to a country that uh, countries that would like to put themselves on the path towards European integration. The other point, of course, is that for a lot of these countries, um, what the EU is trying to do with these agreements is to improve um, governance and um, the machinery of government, civil services, um, judiciaries, and so on um, inside those countries without offering them the prospect of um, membership. Um, Britain may be in a bit of a mess right now, but I don't think anyone is suggesting that the European Union um, is going to try, is going to try try and use a trade deal to improve um, uh, governance inside Britain. So I think probably I, I, I'd be surprised to see those used as a model. Um, one, one final thought. Um, it's interesting to look at this the other way around. Um, I've spoken to people in countries like Turkey and Georgia, actually, um, who say that they're going to be watching these negotiations very closely because if Britain does end up with a fresh form of uh, sort of, you know, I don't know, associate membership or something with the EU um, that doesn't correspond to any of the existing models that we've been describing, that itself could potentially provide a model for some countries who are on the outside but would like to deepen their integration with the EU. Far too early to know what the what the parameters of that might be, what what the content of those deals might be. But it's interesting to to note that there are uh, third countries, countries on the fringes of Europe that would like to deepen their integration with the EU, who will be watching this discussion and the settlement very carefully to see if it might provide a future model for their relationship with the EU. And what about if we sort of turn the, the lens around and, and look at it from the perspective of the, the EU 27? How do you think uh, the Brussels institutions are now thinking about the, the future of Europe? Uh, I mean, how many people feel like they're liberated and that they're now going to be able to forge ahead? How many people are worried that this is going to trigger off a cycle of disintegration and that um, they have to tread very, very carefully and, and, and maybe have a, a less interventionist Europe in order not to fuel Euroscepticism in other countries? I mean, are there other kind of responses? There's, I mean, as ever, there are divisions, uh, nuances. I, I, I think some of those divisions are sometimes overdone in the British media. Um, but of course, there are distinctions. Um, I think amongst some countries, uh, certainly in the immediate aftermath of the referendum, as I was saying before, there was a, there, there was a sort of, uh, there's a very hostile reaction to what Britain had done. And that fed into some of the thinking into what the, how the negotiations might be conducted. Um, with Britain, I don't know if that will last. I don't think um, in the. I don't think ultimately there is going to be a sense of we need to, to punish Britain, but there will certainly be a number of people who are suggesting that. Um, we need to make sure that Britain doesn't get a better deal outside of the European Union than it had inside, because that's going to be a terrible, uh, that's going to create a, a moral hazard, essentially, for, for the future if it starts to look like leaving the EU is a good idea. Um, that that sort of thinking may, 
um, uh, may contribute to, or it may help drive um, a German negotiating position, for example. And again, um, I mean, Britain, uh, Britain consistently, or uh, people inside British governments consistently misread German intentions, I think. Um, the priority for Angela Merkel will be to stop this whole thing from falling apart. That is um, fundamentally what will guide her approach when she's thinking about how to deal with Britain. It's not going to be, the decisive factor is not going to be, you know, German car exporters saying, you know, we've got to make sure that we have no tariffs, otherwise no, that no one's going to buy our goods. Um, so nuances, uh, differences, and that will come to the fore as the European Union tries to, um, uh, 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 to formulate a common line, which will, uh, which may start to take shape later this year. On the 17th of, I think the next big milestone is the 17th of September in Bratislava when they're, they're 27 and going to meet without the UK to talk about these big issues. What would you expect from that? Um, that will be, I think it's on the 16th, I think. That will be... 16th, um, oh dear, sorry. It, um, Apologies to our listeners. <laughs> That's fine. We get real-time fact-checking on this podcast. Um, yeah, that will be um, the, the in the new jargon. It now is at twenty-seven, and that is um, these these structures that take place, decision-making structures uh, that take place without Britain inside. Um, yes, you're correct. That will take place in Bratislava. Slovakia holds the rotating presidency at the moment. Um, I actually I don't expect that very much will happen at that summit on the Brexit front, um, simply because it's going to be rather difficult for the 27 to try and come to a common line on how to deal with Britain when they don't know what Britain's negotiating stance is going to be. And I don't think we will know it by then. I think that um, the discussion there will focus more on what next for the EU at 27. Um, and as you will well know, Mark, uh, there are all sorts of ideas doing the rounds for um, for where the EU goes from here, um, from the sort of the raving federalists, many of whom sit in Brussels, um, to uh, the um, stern-bottomed intergovernmentalists um, who want to see powers return to member states, um, and all sorts of flavours in between. Um, I think it's probably a little bit much to expect that we'll see anything dramatic emerge from that um, from that particular summit. Um, but there are plenty of ideas during the rounds, and it'll be an opportunity for these countries to put them to each other, to take the temperature, um, to work out where they might go next. Um, so, so one one phrase that people use a lot is the Europe of necessity, which I think translates roughly into um, working on some of the the kind of big crises which. Um, uh, on the table, like external borders, anti-terrorism, a bit of integration of the eurozone, and and then maybe a bit of European defence, given that Britain's going to be um, uh, withdrawing. Yeah, I mean, you, you hear about this sort of thing. The trouble is, whenever you drill down into any of the details, it doesn't seem to amount to very much. I mean, we heard this before the referendum, that um, whatever the outcome was going to be, um, the EU needed to start start to focus very um, sort of laser-like on those issues on which working uh, collaboratively together at 27 obviously made sense. And all of the issues that you just mentioned um, uh, uh, have been discussed. Um, but then but what does that amount to in practice? So if you take migration, for example, you mentioned the border guard, and I think everyone agrees that that makes sense. Um, and we have uh, the Dutch, the previous Dutch presidency um, helped get that legislative file in order, and the Slovaks are hoping that that's going to be up and running um, towards the end of their six months. Um, and that's all very well. 
um, the original proposal was watered down, as it often is. It now it no longer involves um, that the the new border guard would not have the right to intervene against the wishes of the country or on whose territory it would be intervening, as um, the original proposal suggested. Um, but then beyond that, well, uh, we're still completely split on the question of relocation of asylum seekers, as I was talking about before, on resettlement of um, of refugees from third countries, um, on what uh, a more um, ambitious, um, skilled labour migration programme might look like. So um, if it's a Europe of necessity, then it looks like the only thing that we can agree that we all need is this border guard. Um, that's necessary, but it's hardly a grand leap forward in, in European integration. Similarly on defence, you know, um, what is this going to amount to? Well, it might amount to a more integrated um, planning headquarters for some European military mission, um, perhaps a bit more collaboration on um, procurement of military assets, um, you know, big deal. Does, and, and when it comes to the Eurozone, which of course is absolutely crucial, um, the trouble is the absence of Britain doesn't help uh, the, the countries inside the Eurozone, to which of course Britain was never a member, resolve the differences that have hamstrung integration for years now. So unless there's going to be, and, and, and that's complicated by the fact that we have French and German elections next year and it's going to be very hard to do anything before that. So, um, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to, to see what sort of conversations take place in these areas. But at the moment, I'm sceptical about sort of any um, any any grand ideas um, actually being implemented. So we're, we're already a bit over time, but it's been a, an interesting discussion. Maybe I can ask you one last more personal question, Tom, because you're... You've been writing about European politics for a long time. You're a uh, cosmopolitan uh, Brit. I think you were one of the 48%. I'm not sure if you're allowed to admit that in public, but I, I suspect that you might be. Um, how does it feel sitting in Brussels now? Are you, you know, just on a personal level, do you feel there's a lot of hostility towards Brits? Is there kind of sympathy from, from other Europeans? How do, is there a sort of clubbing together? But presumably there are a lot of people who, who, whose world has just collapsed around them. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's fine for journalists because we've got plenty of stuff to write about. Um, I, I, I certainly do feel for um, British officials working in the institutions here, um, their future is unclear. Um, now, they have that they're not going to be booted out um, the moment that Britain leaves the EU. They've been um, assured of that by um, by the commission hierarchy. But I think it's become very clear that if you have ambitions, um, if you have grand ambitions for your career um, and you're sort of a mid-ranking civil servant inside a DG in the commission, um, Br Brussels, there probably is not very much future for you in Brussels. You're, you're not going to be looked at for promotions. You're probably not going to get to, to advance your career very much. Um, I think it's a difficult time for a lot of these people. Um, more broadly, uh, I mean, in the, immediately after the vote, uh, it was there was a lot of sympathy for British people, including me. Um, and it was uh, the people who were particularly sympathetic were the Greeks because they went through their own referendum related trauma um, a, a year ago, just over a year ago, when they when they came within an ace of being chucked out of the of the eurozone. Um, so I've I've had Greek friends and colleagues who have come up to me and you know sort of given me a hug and told me how much they understand what we're going through. It's a slightly strange position. You know, as a Brit, I think you 
sub you sort of unconsciously you think well we're the c- kind of country that doesn't do crazy things we don't do we never make whatever we do we don't make ourselves the laughing stock or we don't make ourselves a subject of pity in europe um and that is kind of what has happened now and there was one particularly telling moment for me um a week after the referendum um i went to greece for as a scheduled trip to a conference and i landed at the airport and it happened to be when boris johnson was um, declaring that he would not stand for um, for the premiership. Um, so I watched him do that and then went to talk to the organiser of the conference, uh, who a, a Greek woman, and she had been following the news as well. She looked at me and she said, what is happening to your country? And I thought, wow, when you come to Greece and you have people asking you that, then you know that something very dramatic has happened. Okay, apologies to any Greek listeners for... Tom's disparaging your country. Oh no, I think it's where democracy comes from. Well. Tom. <laughs> um, okay, well, thank you very much. It's been a really, really interesting discussion. There's one last thing which I'm going to ask of you before we end this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf? as you go off for your summer holidays so um i've been recently in fact just before we were speaking i was making my way through parts of a book called this blessed plot by hugo young uh the late hugo young who was a um, esteemed british political journalist for uh sunday times the guardian perhaps some others and this is a very comprehensive very well sourced um, sort of magisterial, to use that terrible reviewer's cliche, um, history of the tortured uh, relationship between Britain and Europe, Britain and the European Union. It, um, it takes you, it tells you the story of um, Br- the British approach to European integration, starting with Churchill after the war, taking you up to Blair, it finishes in the late 90s, just before the um, just before the single currency was launched. Um, and it's a fascinating way to put some of the debates that we're seeing now and some of the ones that are just about to emerge in the talks to come into some sort of historical context. Um, and it's perhaps slightly comforting to see just how much difficulty the subject of Europe has caused for British prime ministers um, for the last 60, 70 years. And it helps you understand that although this may be a difficult time um, that Britain is going through right now, it's certainly not unique. So, um, yeah, I think that one that what might be one that I'm going to plow my way through over the summer. It is a fantastic book and it is kind of a, it's a document from another era because Hugo Young wrote that when Tony Blair was trying to end our historically ambivalent relationship towards the EU and to join the Euro rather than withdrawing from the European Union. Exactly. And there's a description of John Major who made his first speech as Prime Minister, made his first speech outside of Britain in Bonn. Um, and said that he wanted um, Britain to be at the heart of Europe. And Hugo Young finds the notes on which um, Major wrote his own speech. And it, he had inserted in his own handwriting um, the word very before heart, before the word heart. He wanted Britain to be at the very heart of Europe. Didn't really work out like that. <laughs> so that is true. So I, um, I'm inspired. I was going to mention something else, but I'm kind of inspired by your by your reflection. So maybe it's a companion piece to those, uh, may, and it's slightly shorter as well. If you can't quite make your whole way through uh, through Hugo Young's amazing book, there's there's a rather wonderful uh, lecture which uh, Linda Colley, who's one of the preeminent historians of Britishness, she wrote an extraordinary book called Britain's Forging the Nation about the creation of Britain. Um, 
she she gave this lecture in Downing Street called Britain as Europe, where she traces the complicated history of um, of Britain and and the EU, and sort of explains it's impossible to think about British history as anything other than than European history, and that it is it's weird that we've ended up in a in a situation where we talk about Britain and Europe. And um, she starts with this, with the, I've forgotten what, uh, what year it was, but it was, uh, she counterposes these two sort of dates which are etched in, uh, which, which happened the same year. One was the anniversary of the Battle of Britain and the other was the uh, completion of the Channel Tunnel. <laughs> and she was uh, saying, you know, on the one hand, you have this completely utopian plan to try to end Britain's history as an island nation and to build a tunnel, which had inspired generation after generation of, of um of, uh, of, of of engineers and scientists, and it was finally came to its fruition at just the time when uh, what people wanted to do was talk about Britain's finest hour and Winston Churchill. She blames Winston Churchill for creating this distorted idea of of, uh, of Britain as somehow separate from from uh, from Europe. Anyway, um, well, I'm so, a big fan of hers, um, so I'll uh, Linda Colley, so I'll, I'll check that out. Good tip. So we'll put links up to both of those things on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you have enjoyed listening to Tom and myself rambling on, please do tell all your friends about it by tweeting about it, writing about it on your Facebook page, writing about it on ECFR's Facebook page. And even better, what would be incredibly helpful to us would be if you could give us a review and a ranking on iTunes or SoundCloud or Mixcloud or whatever platform it is that you're using to listen to this podcast. If you have any comments on this or would like to suggest future topics or future people for me to chat to, please don't hesitate to drop me a line at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Tom Nuttall and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. 